Chapter Three of Weapons of Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. Weapons of Mystery by Joseph Hawking. Chapter Three Christmas Morning. When I got out on the lawn, I accused myself of doing a very foolish thing. Why, I thought, should I follow these men? I know nothing against them. They have as much right here as I have, and surely two friends can leave the house and come out for a stroll without being watched. With this thought in my mind, I turned to go back again, when I heard voices close by me. Evidently they were behind some large laurel bushes, which hid them from my sight. I stopped again for an instant, but, knowing I had no right to listen to what might be private conversation, I started a second time for the house, when I heard the name of Gertrude Forrest, and then I seemed chained to the ground. "'You have inquired about her,' said a voice, which I recognized as belonging to Voltaire. The answer was in Arabic, and was spoken by Kaffar. Five years prior to the time of which I am writing, I had been engaged in a work that required a knowledge of the Arabic language, and although it cannot be said I had become anything like proficient in that tongue, I had been taught by an Arabian, and could enter into ordinary conversation. Thus I understood the Egyptian's reply. With regard to Miss Forrest, he said, I answer not in the language which every one here knows. Miss Forrest must be yours, and that for several reasons. She is a flower in herself. She is an orphan. She has a large fortune. She has absolute control over it. She has a fine house in England's capital." She has a large estate and a grand country mansion in the south of this country. Win her, Herod Voltaire, and you can be a little king, and I your prime minister. We heard much about her before we came, but we did not think to find such a queen. Win her, man, and our fortunes are made. This was said quickly, and with all the fervor of an eastern. Yes, Kaffer, it would be well if it could be done, to be an English gentleman, with an entree into the best English society, is what I have longed for. It will not only satisfy my taste, but give me power, and power is what I must have. It is by good luck we are here, but neither of us have the means to pass as English aristocrats very long. As you say, something must be done, and, upon my honour, I have very nearly fallen in love with her, but she must be won, and won fairly." She is evidently strong and determined, and can be forced to do nothing. Nonsense, snarled the Egyptian. Use all your seductive arts first, and if you fail to win her by those, trust me to weave such a chain of events as shall make her become Mrs. Voltaire. Up to this point I listened attentively, and then a minute's silence on their part aroused me to myself. Was it right to stand listening thus? and yet a thousand things justified the act. They moved on from the spot where they had been standing, but I was too much stunned to follow them. At that moment I realized that I had given my heart to Gertrude Forrest, and that another man had designs concerning her. This sudden falling into love may appear foolish, especially when it is remembered that I had passed the age of boyhood, and yet I have known several cases similar to my own. Anyhow, I— who had never loved before, loved now, loved, perhaps, foolishly, for I knew nothing of the lady I loved, 
and, of course, had not the slightest hope of her caring for me. Thus it was with a throbbing heart that I stood there alone upon the lawn, with the knowledge of my new-found love just breaking upon me, and, more than that, I had every reason to fear that she was to be made the dupe of two clever villains. I turned to follow them, but they were gone I knew not whither, and so I proceeded back to the house, determined that, if I could be nothing else, I would be Miss Forrest's protector. I had been back in the drawing-room perhaps ten minutes, when Voltaire and Kaffar returned, and apparently entered with great zest into the festivities of the evening. There is no necessity that I should write of what took place during the remainder of Christmas Eve. It was held in good old English style, and to most, I am sure, it was very enjoyable. I got an opportunity of speaking to Miss Forrest, but only for a very short time. At the same time, I noticed that Voltaire took not the slightest notice of her. When I woke the following morning and looked out, I saw the great Yorkshire hills were covered with snow, the air was bitingly cold, and the leaden sky promised us some real Christmas weather. I was soon dressed and ready to go down, but on looking at my watch I found I had an hour to spare before breakfast. Arrangements had been made for us to breakfast at ten, and thus be just in time for service at the little village church. On my way downstairs I saw Tom Temple, who told me to find my way to the library, where I should be able to pass the time pleasantly. I entered the room, an old-fashioned dark place lined on every side with books. I felt in no mood for looking at them just then, however, and so walked to a window and looked out on the snow-draped landscape that stretched away on every hand. It was a wondrous scene. The snow had fallen steadily all through the night, and no breath of wind had stirred the feathery flakes. Thus trees and bushes were laden with snow crystals, while the spotless white was relieved here and there by some shining evergreen leaves which peeped out amidst their snowy mantles. Ordinarily I should have been impressed by it. Now, however, I could not help thinking of other matters. One face was ever before me, and I constantly wondered whether she were in real danger from these strange men, and whether I should have any part in the labor of delivering her from them. And yet I could do nothing. I knew nothing wrong of them. They might be impostors, they might be penniless adventurers, but I could not prove it. Neither could I tell Miss Forrest what I had heard, while certainly Voltaire had as much right as I had to seek to win her affections. These thoughts had scarcely passed through my mind when, hearing a sound behind me, I turned and saw Miss Forrest, who met me with a bright good morning and the compliments of the season. I blushed almost guiltily at the sound of her voice. I, who had for years declared that no woman could interest me enough to make my heart throb one whit the quicker. "'It is a pleasant surprise,' I said, after responding to her greeting. I quite expected to be alone for an hour at least. You see, we all remained up so late last night that it was to me a settled matter that none of you would appear until it was time to start for church. "'I hope I am not disturbing you in your morning's meditations, Mr. Blake.' she replied, I would have stayed in my room had I thought so. On the other hand, I am delighted to see you here. Whether you know it or not, I rode from London to Leeds with you yesterday, and I have thought ever since I should like to know you. She looked straight at me, as if she would read my thoughts, and then said pleasantly, I was on the point of asking you whether such was not the case. I was not sure, because you had your travelling cap pulled over your face. How strange, though, that we were both bound for the same place, I said. Yes, it does seem remarkable, 
and yet it is not so wonderful, after all. I am an old friend and schoolfellow of Emily Temple, while you, I am told, are an old friend and schoolfellow of her brother. Thus nothing is more natural than that we should be invited to a gathering such as this. Do you know any of the people who are here? I asked. I have met nearly all the young ladies, but only two of the gentlemen, Mr. Voltaire and Mr. Coffer. I saw them on the continent. Indeed, I said, while I have no doubt a dark look passed over my face. Do you not like them? she asked. I do not know enough of either, I replied, to give an answer reasonably, either in the affirmative or the negative. I think my failing is to form hasty judgments concerning people, which, of course, cannot be fair. I said this rather stammeringly, while she watched me keenly. That means you do not like them, she said. Are you quite justified in saying that? I replied, scarcely knowing what else to say. Quite, she said. You feel towards them just as I do. I was introduced to them in Berlin. Mr. Tom Temple had formed their acquaintance somehow, and seemed wonderfully fascinated by them. I scarcely spoke to them, however, as I left Germany the next day, and was rather surprised to see them here last night. Mr. Voltaire is a very fascinating man, I suggested. There can be no doubt about that, was her reply. And yet I fancy much of his high-flown talk about spiritualism was mere imagination. I was inclined to think so at first, but I have heard strange things about him. However, it is perhaps scarcely fair to talk about him thus. All this time we had stood looking out of the window upon the wintry landscape, and I, at least, was oblivious to all else but the fact that I was talking with a woman whose interest for me was paramount, when a lump of coal fell from the grate upon the fire-irons. We both turned and saw Herod Voltaire standing by the bookcase with an open volume in his hand. A disinterested person might have fancied he had not heard a word of our conversation, but I was sure I saw a steely glitter in his eyes, and a cruel smile playing around his mouth. "'Then you go to church this morning,' I said, seeking to turn the conversation as naturally as I could. "'Yes, I always do on Christmas morning,' she replied, as if thankful I had given her an opportunity to speak about other matters. "'Then I hope I shall have the pleasure of escorting you,' I replied." Ordinarily I should not have dared to mention such a matter to a lady I had seen so little of, but the request slipped out unthinkingly, and she, no doubt, confused by the presence of Voltaire, cheerfully assented. Our embarrassment came to an end just then, for several others came into the room, and the conversation became general. As the reader may guess, I was highly elated at the turn matters were taking, and in my heart I began to laugh at Voltaire's idea of winning Gertrude Forrest. Moreover, she had willingly consented to walk to church with me, and had expressed a dislike for the man I, in spite of myself, was beginning to fear. Only a few of the party found their way to the old, time-honored building to join in the Christmas service that morning. Some were tired and remained in their rooms, while others enjoyed sitting around the cheerful fires. I was not sorry, however, for I was thus enabled to enjoy more of Miss Forrest's society. Need I say that my morning was truly enjoyable? I think not. I found in my companion one who was in every way delightful. Widely read, she was able to converse about books she loved, and possessing a mind that was untrammeled by society notions, it was refreshing to hear her talk. Far removed from the giddy schoolgirl, she was yet full of mirth and pleasantness. Ready-witted, she was quick at repartee, 
and possessing a keen sense of humor, she saw enjoyment in that which to many would be commonplace. Only one thing marred my happiness. That was the memory of a cruel look which rested on Voltaire's face as we went away together. From that moment I am sure he regarded me as his rival, and from that moment he sought to measure his strength with mine. I could see in his face that he had guessed my secret, while I fancied I could see, beneath his somewhat cynical demeanor, indications of his love for Gertrude Forrest. On our way back from church we met Voltaire and Kaffar, who were eagerly conversing. They took little notice of us, however, and, for my own part, I felt relieved when they were out of sight. "'Do you know what is on the program for to-night?' I said, when they were out of hearing. "'Yes. Mr. Temple has arranged for a conjurer and a ventriloquist to come, and thus we shall have something to occupy our attention besides ordinary chit-chat.' "'I am very glad,' I replied, although I should be delighted to spend the evening as I have spent this morning. I said this with an earnestness about which there could be no doubt, and I fancied I saw a blush mount to her cheek. At any rate, I felt that we were good friends, and my heart beat with high hope. Arriving at Temple Hall, I saw Tom reading a letter. "'Disappointing, Justin, my boy,' he said. "'What's the matter?' I asked. "'Why, I engaged some fellows to come here and give us an entertainment to-night, and they write to say they can't come. But never mind. We must do the best we can among ourselves. You're good at all sorts of odd games. While it—' "'Yes, the very thing. That's delightful.' "'What's delightful?' "'You'll know to-night. Pon my word, it's lucky those juggling fellows can't come. Anyhow, I can promise you a jolly evening.' Had I known then what that evening would lead to, I should not have entered the house so joyously as I did, but I knew nothing of what lay in the future, while Miss Forrest's great dark eyes beamed upon me in such a way as to make earth seem like heaven. End of chapter 3